Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. is the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that over there is andy nelson hey 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 
and we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're wrapping up our Betty Davis series with Robert Aldrich's Weirdathon, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you were ever curious if the murderous Betty Davis ever applied her talents to birds or small animals in addition to humans, then you're in the right place for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's check in with Games Master Steven Smart, who we currently have trussed up and gagged in the bedroom upstairs just so we could find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Cowboys from 1972, directed by Mark Rydell and starring John Wayne, Roscoe Lee Brown and Bruce Dern. Congrats to at Brendo61 who guessed it on Image 2. You're entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday, so thanks guys and see you later. And we got a blot spot this time following up on uh, All About Eve from a uh, great friend of the show Ben Lott. This is not the first time I have seen a story about a young ingenue who makes an experienced actress feel threatened. But the plot of All About Eve was crafted so perfectly and the performances were so spot on that I was actually surprised by Eve's turn halfway through the film. From that point on, you expect the film to take a dark turn, but they continued to surprise me. And I'll agree with Andy that the final scene might be one of the greatest finales in film history. Your rank 54, my rank 29. That is awesome. That is awesome. I'm not saying it, 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 it might be the greatest finale in film history. I'm not like the oddball. <laughs> it's, it's great. I'm just saying you guys are using awfully heady words for how great it may be. Well, you know, there's a lot of films out there, but there has to be one that has the greatest final scene, right? <laughs> I guess that's true. Oh, well. It's like Highlander, man. Come on. <laughs> There could be only one greatest finale in film. <laughs> Andy, there could also be only one trailer. So my trailer, Pete. You know, I, I'm quite excited about this uh, new movie, Jackie, uh, with uh, Natalie Portman. Um, it's I I find all of the the history about JFK very fascinating. Um, there are so many interesting stories about um, about him as a president and uh, him, especially his assassination, and then of course the conspiracy theories and all of that sort of stuff. But I really kind of knew nothing about uh, about First Lady Jackie Kennedy, and really kind of everything that she went through after the assassination. Um, so this really kind of, uh, I, I knew she was kind of like a fashion icon and just stuff like that, but I didn't really know much about her. And so I, I saw this trailer and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a really interesting glimpse into that life and kind of everything that was going on with her and how she had to portray herself, um, in order to kind of help the nation get through it and just all of this sort of stuff and how that affects her personally and her children and all that sort of stuff. I, I, just, I don't know. I just found it really fascinating. And so um, especially considering that, hey, we're talking about Betty Davis, you know, one of the, the greatest actresses, I was like, it'd be great to find a trailer that has, uh, you know, a a modern great actress in a performance here. And I'm, it, from what I've been hearing about what Natalie Portman does here and from seeing the trailer, it certainly sounds like she uh, might be fitting the bill as far as that goes. But, uh, you know, Pablo Lorraine is directing this. This. Um, we're actually, uh, we might be talking about him maybe a bit next year. So that kind of excites me. 
Um, and Noah Oppenheim wrote this script. It's um, it's going to be, I don't know, I, I'm really excited about what they're doing here. Uh, Natalie Portman, John Hurt, Peter Sarsgaard, Billy Crudup, Greta Gerwig, uh, John Carroll Lynch is in it, Max Casella. It's got a great cast. And uh, I'm excited about it. What did you think? I was really taken by it, as as I think I am also with Jackie herself. I think she's a fascinating character, and I or a person. And I don't feel like I know that much about her, but I, I just it's one of those sort of media charisma events whenever I see her talking. And so uh, I'm really excited to see how they treat this film. I was. Uh, really smitten when I saw who was directing it. And then I, you know, I got Noah Oppenheim. I, what I know of Noah Oppenheim is, you know, he comes more from the world of production, uh, you know, production yeah. news. He produced Hardball for a long time and Today Show for a long time, long time, uh, 643 episodes. So he's got a couple, two, three years there. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's a news guy, documentary guy, but he wrote Allegiant and The Maze Runner. Right. And yeah, I know I I wasn't excited about either of those movies like they n- neither one of them really really met the what I was looking for. I know I'm not the core audience target audience for those. So I, I was disappointed in those films. And so that that's the only thing that gives me pause about Jackie. I and I do agree with you there. I'm just hoping that the rest of the team is going to do something great with it. And it sounds like they are. I mean, it, this has been playing at festivals for uh for quite a while now starting uh, at the Venice Film Festival back in September and uh, I think it just finished its festival run. It's going to be opening December 2nd. So buzz is out there. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. So we'll see, I guess. Well, my trailer Andy I can't believe we haven't talked about it, but Trailer 2 hit this week with Kong Skull Island. Uh, this is filmed, uh, directed by Jordan Vaught-Roberts, uh, written by Dan Gilroy, uh, and stars Brie Larson, Tom Hiddleston, uh, Toby Kebbell, Sam Jackson, John Goodman, Corey Hawkins, uh, John C. Riley, John C. Riley's beard. Uh, it, it's a, it, it's a, it looks like a giant, fantastic, big, uh, you know, monster movie, CG motion capture, awesome monster movie. And the trailer, Andy, is terrible. It's terrible. It fails everything a trailer is supposed to do, right? And, you know, we used to we used to pick trailers, and I think, you know, to an extent we still do, but we may have, have wandered off the path. The trailers that we would pick were the trailers that we wanted to celebrate because they were they delivered what a trailer was supposed to do. They were supposed to excite you about a film. They were supposed to get supposed to get you motivated to go see the film, to tease you about the film, uh, to to give you something to look forward to, uh, and to be a particular celebration of the art of the trailer in itself. Right? Not not just a commercial, but but there is a certain craft to to creating a trailer, and and we wanted to have those kinds of things that we're, we're showcasing. This trailer is the worst on all of those points. This movie may be awesome. This may be an explosion of light and color and size and sound and fantasticness. But they gave all of it to us in the trailer. I don't even care about the movie anymore. I know what Kong looks like. I know who the 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 all the the various that there are all sorts of other giant monsters on the island. I've seen most of them. The big spider, that's scary. I've seen all the things that come up from the deep. Now, of course, I'm sure you're going to tell me, Pete, I'm sure that they've saved something uh, for the film. And and I'm going to say, Andy, you're right. We're going to have this conversation. I'm sure there's something out there. But they've given me so much in the damn trailer that I don't care. 
I don't care. And it makes me really frustrated at the movie, at the decisions that uh, Jordan Vaught Roberts and team uh, went through for this stupid trailer to give so much away of the visuals uh, that, that it absolutely sucked my excitement right out of seeing the film. There you go. That's it. That's what I have Well, to say. You Mr. May, you Poopy Pants. I pooped all over it. I did. I was in the theater. We went to see Fantastic Beasts this weekend, saw it on the big screen, and there's Kong giving it all away. You know, I, I think you're wrong. I actually really enjoyed the trailer. This is, it's a monster movie. This is going to be, it's, it's, I mean, this is a film about, you know, all of the monsters on Skull Island, and it's just like, they're going to show us the monsters because this is just a B monster movie and they're just giving it to us. And I actually kind of enjoyed what they did with the trailer because of that. They weren't afraid to hold back because, hey, we're going to have wall to wall monsters throughout this movie. So just settle in and enjoy the ride. So I had a great time. And you were a cheap date. <laughs> I, I can be. <laughs> uh, yes, I can be. <laughs> well, you will. Uh, you can be uh, a fully spoiled March 10th, 2017. Actually, you're Excellent. already fully spoiled. You don't even need to do anything else. You, you know what it's about. So on, you can confirm it on March 10th, 2017. And I will. <laughs> Andy, I wonder if you can guess who I am. His address is heaven above. I wonder if you can guess who I am. I'm Baby Jane Hudson. Who the hell was Baby Jane Hudson? I've written a letter to Daddy saying I love you. My sister doesn't ever go out. She's um, not fit to receive visitors. Jane, I want to talk to you. I'm afraid I have bad news. We'll probably have to sell the house. You aren't ever gonna sell this house. And you aren't ever gonna leave it. She's sick and she's not getting any better. You mean Jane? I think she seems much better lately. I was cleaning the cage. The bird got out. things to me if I weren't still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. <laughs> Jane, please. Don't do this to me. Jane. Jane, please. Whatever happened to baby Jane, Andy? People all over the world are asking themselves what happened to her. <laughs> Director Robert Aldrich, screenwriter Lucas Heller, Adapted by the, from the novel by Henry Farrell, uh, stars Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Victor Buono from 1962. This is the last film in our series in which Andy attempts to uh, convince Pete that Betty Davis is deserving of her title of screen icon and grand dame of cinema. Uh, Andy, watching this film this time, how did it hit you? Uh, you know, I had such a great time watching this film. It's so twisted and dark and 
you know, I, I think my memory of it was that it was a little more campy because I think it has such a camp status. It's kind of got this this queer icon status and all of that. And I think that's kind of how I had locked it in my head. But watching it again, I was just like, man, this is just a really frightening movie. It is really dark. It is twisted. And it is really watching these uh, these sisters uh, just, you know, going at each other's throats. Well, really one going at the other's throat um, because she's got like she's mentally unstable. Uh, there's just the psychological abuse. It was really just a dark, disturbing story. It made for a really tense and intense horror film. I had an absolute great time watching it. Andy? Yes? I agree. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> you have me worried there. <sighs> yeah, no, I, I this uh, I, I told you last week I've seen this movie before. It's been some time, but I, I remember really liking it. I, I, I had no connection to Aldrich uh, at the time, and so I always had just remembered this as just Hitchcock, you know, and I think it lives up to the standard uh, of, of a Hitchcock kind of thriller, a cerebral thriller uh, that, that turns into something even more maniacal. Um, I, I really love that the movie poster, if you look at the original movie poster, it, it has a warning on the poster that is something I hadn't seen before. Uh, I'd like to read it now, if you don't mind. Go this for is it. The, this is the fine print. Things you should know about this motion picture before buying a ticket. One, if you are long-standing long fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, we warn you this is quite unlike anything they've ever done. Two, you are urged to see it from the beginning. Three, be prepared for the macabre and the terrifying. Four, we ask you to pledge to keep the shocking climax a secret. Five, when the tension begins to build, try to remember it's just a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is awesome and pulling kind. a little bit from uh, Hitchcock yeah. and Psycho's marketing. Exactly right, exactly. <laughs> and so that's kind of why I've always had this in my uh, in that sort of Hitchcock gestalt. I think that uh, it is fantastic to watch this film. First of all, knowing what happened to both of these actresses' children, and that they both went on uh, to to write these stories uh, and tell the stories of being raised by these women. Um, I My memory of Joan Crawford is from her being played by Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest, and uh, that, you know, Betty Davis's daughter would go on to write My Mother's Keeper. You know, the lesson here is don't let your kids write books. My God, um, uh, this was uh, this was the story of these uh, of these women that that and the torment that they put one another through over the years um, that that really I, I couldn't look away. I called this a in my mind, I call it a train wreck movie. And and I think that that is maybe more what train wreck is is means to me like we we say train wreck now it's like oh it was a disaster it was horrible for me a, a train wreck is really something that that has so much terror and horror and and horrific images that you can't look away right it it doesn't mean it was bad it means i can't look away and that's how i felt in this movie i it, even as sort of campy as it may have appeared some of the cuts that that kind of bend from the uh, you know the more thriller to camp. Uh, I even I couldn't look away even even then. I thought it was fantastic. A great example of of you know what these women can do. Well, and it's a really interesting thing that Aldrich ended up doing by casting uh, Davis and Crawford. I mean, 
two actresses who really had kind of been um, not necessarily at each other's throats um, from uh, the beginning, but they certainly um, didn't have that many kind words about each other. And it was just kind of this thing. They were just kind of always Hollywood rivals. They had always uh, kind of seemed that way. And, and to cast the two of them together in this film, it seemed almost as much uh, stunt casting as just a, a, a brilliant move to get two great actresses to play these two roles. And I think that uh, there's a certain level of that by, by letting these two, um, who really, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, were kind of arch rivals outside of, uh, outside of the screen. Um, here they got to be inside the screen as arch rivals, and it ended up working so well. But it's, uh, it's, it's such an interesting thing because, I mean, people were worried that uh, Aldrich was kind of making a mistake by casting these old actresses. I mean, this was kind of the end of the studio era had ended, and, and really people didn't have long careers, especially actresses, sad to say, that went on so long. I mean, usually they would kind of get old and nobody would hire them anymore and they would kind of disappear. These two kind of proved over and over again that careers didn't have to end. As long as there were interesting roles out there, they could they could get them and they could draw an audience. And uh, by casting these two uh, older women, I mean, we talked about this with, with Davis in uh, All About Eve. It kind of revitalized her career. With this movie, it did kind of again. You know, 12 years later, the All About Eve stage of her career had kind of ended. And this kind of created this whole new era for her that she kind of rode out until the end. And same thing with Crawford, who was, uh, went on to be in a whole bunch of kind of these low-end B movies all the way until I think Trog was her last film. And, uh, you know, it's great that that this was just kind of another opportunity to show people that uh, somebody's career doesn't have to end just because they're older. Just give them, you know, different things to play. I, I had so much fun watching these two and just thinking about everything in their lives and how they all connected and how it all came, yeah. came off on screen here. It is. Uh, it's really fun to think about. Although, and you know, I'm I'm interested in how the the press treated these women because you know my understanding was even before this film they hadn't actually exchanged many words with each other. They didn't like each other. They were rivals in terms of being competitors, but but they they hadn't uh, they they hadn't didn't know each other really for for lack of a better word. And and I think their animosity grew from there. Uh, so I, I'm really interested in the effect of the media on their relationship and, and how, you know, how much of an impact did it have on, on, uh, you know, how well they were able to communicate with one another based on, you know, the, the meter of how, of what the media was, was talking about in terms of them. I, I think they, you know, they founded, they sort of, this film defines the psycho bitty movie. And we've talked about psycho bitty movie in passing, not knowing many of them. And yet here we are, this is the film that introduced it to the world. I love that uh that that we we get to come back to this um they and and it was davis herself that said this is a this was truly a break in women's films uh that it was a film that that centers on these two women characters that don't involve the men if you don't count you know don't involve a romantic relationship uh you know not counting you know the relationship with the father briefly um and and that these two go for broke performances uh you know were really definitive uh, in in, in changing the perception of of uh, uh, certainly a genre, so I guess this would pass the uh, the was it the Bechdel test? Yeah, I think handily, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so it, funny. Uh, easily. Yeah. So uh, the, the script's by Lucas Heller, and uh, you know it's based. We talked about the. It was based on the the novel, the 1960 novel by Henry Farrell. I it, did you peek through the novel at all? I have not. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't either. I don't have a lot to say about Lucas Heller, but I just want to highlight these the the way he turns these um, these suspense bits because I think they they work really really well. Right there, there were four elements that I that um, that really stuck out to me. Uh, the way they handled. The, the use of the phone, and, and in particular the use of the phone, uh, you know, the mechanics of the phone. And, and it may be lost on viewers today, <laughs> if you're not of a certain age, how phones used to work. Uh, and, and probably <laughs> if you're interested in this movie, uh, you know how phones used to work. But, but they really played, he really plays the mechanics of the phone and, and, you know, what it means to leave the phone off the hook to other people who are trapped in a house trying to use the phone ends up being a, a particularly suspenseful uh, mechanic. Um, the, uh, you know, little things like the, not, the, the balled up uh, paper with the please save me note. Uh, as uh, Blanche throws it out the window, uh, and it lands so perfectly on the driveway, just about ready for the next door neighbor to pick it up, right as uh, as Betty Davis's uh, character comes back in the car, and they stand there over it, uh, cutting perfectly <laughs> back from these wide medium shots uh, to this really high angle, looking down at the two women talking over the ball of paper on the driveway. Very suspenseful mechanic. Uh, the the first rescue, you know, as the as the maid, uh, the the housekeeper comes back uh, and goes upstairs. Is you're not quite sure what what's going to happen with her. What's going to happen with that hammer? Uh, and uh, and and we find out what happens with the hammer. All of these elements are great, and of course. I know you're such a fan of the way the meals are handle, handled. It's uh, it's fantastic the way that we are handle kind of, you know, the reveal of the parakeet um, and then the reveal that the next tray is nothing but food, but then building that to the next reveal that it's rats. And it's just the way that that works so well in the script, just constantly playing with our minds as Jane is playing with Blanche's mind. It just worked so perfectly in the script. It really does. And, and you know, I, I'm glad we added this to the note. I'm glad you added this to the note. Anytime Jane's out, this race against time, that's another one where they play with repetition, right? He so successfully tricks us that every time Jane leaves, and it's not just once— Every time she leaves the house, it's a race against time, and it becomes uh, successively more sort of intimidating and perilous, even though we know the feeling, like we've already been there. It's a familiar feeling, and yet he's able to play us with that feeling time and time again. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it works so effectively. Um, I, I think the script has a lot of that in that, but obviously, you know, Robert Aldrich and his editor um, built a lot of that in as well. It just, it's it's... I mean, they really put this together like it is a horror thriller and uh, from from Heller's script through the way that Aldrich directed it and his editor cut it. I mean, it just all um, is taught tense and uh, perfect. Heller went on uh, or, or Heller had, I should say, did he go on? Yeah, I think he went on after this to to do a couple of episodes of Hitchcock Hour uh, and then Flight of the Phoenix and Dirty Dozen in addition to uh, about two dozen other uh, titles that he he penned. Um, but really, uh, this was this is some great suspense stuff. Uh, so Robert Aldrich uh, direction. I think he's a he's a, a solid director. I mean, I, I think this film gets so lost in the two stars as far as what they're doing here and bringing to the table. 
that I think it's easy to kind of um, lose touch with uh, the director as far as what he's actually doing here. And I know Aldrich uh, was more of a uh, kind of an auteur, uh, liberal, humanistic sort of filmmaker um, with some of his other films. Um, interestingly, he worked with Lucas Heller uh, on a number of them. But um, but this one isn't so much. I mean, this one really kind of goes back to, I think, more of his uh, his noir days and, and the stuff that he was doing with Kiss Me Deadly and The Big Knife that really kind of had a, a little bit more of that darker turn. And I think that he uh, very adeptly shows that he knows how to handle this type of story. I mean, he does it really well. It's uh, it's just very successful and it's it's really tense. Um, uh, you know, I I think he's a director that um, you don't really hear people talking about him much as a director, but he certainly has directed a ton of stuff that people know. Um, you know, aside from like this, and uh, I mean, you'd already uh, kind of talked about um, the Dirty Dozen, Flight of the Phoenix, but he did Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. He did. Um, uh, the longest yard was kind of a big one later in his life. Uh, so I mean, he's he's a guy who's done a lot of a lot of big stuff, and I think he does a great job here. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, also based on the book, right? By the same author, originally titled "Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte?" And uh, I think there was a, what was the other one that he did? "Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice?" Yeah, which I don't yeah. I don't know if it's also from the, uh, the same author, but. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was all, you know, he kind of became somebody who's doing some of these uh, psycho bitty films. Wonder, wondering what happened to all of these family members? <laughs> where, where did they go? Uh, anyway, uh, but, you know, what's interesting about Aldrich is that he comes back and is able to do these movies like, you know, The Longest Yard with, with Burt Reynolds, which, uh, you know, is a, a notably different style and tone. And I think it's uh, it, it's it's an adept and, and um, sort of versatile filmmaking. Well, I think um, I pulled this quote that a critic said, uh, film critic John Patterson, just a few years ago, said he was a punchy, caustic, macho, and pessimistic director who depicted corruption and evil unflinchingly and pushed limits on violence throughout his career. His aggressive and pugnacious filmmaking style, often crass and crude, but never less than utterly vital and alive, warrants and will richly reward your immediate attention. I, mean, I think that says yeah. a lot about, yeah. you know, what he does as a director and really what he's bringing to the table here. I mean, there's definitely some violence in this film that I, I think for 1962, it's, it's, you know, pretty uh, intense. I mean, it warranted an X certificate in the UK when it was released. So that's well, and that, that's an interesting note that, right. That it, it opens with the UK. And I think it was so right around 2004 that the re-release opened as 12 a uh, in the UK. Um, mighty. The times they change. <laughs> Why don't you uh, kick us off with the first shot, last shot? The first shot, we start uh, with the black screen and uh, 1917 as a super. And then uh, over the black, we hear a girl crying and a man's voice says, want to see it again, little girl? It shouldn't frighten you. Then we get to this wacky worm's eye view from inside a jack-in-the-box as it pops open. Something I've never seen before when you're in the box looking up as the little clown pops out. Uh, then you cut to this uh, shot of the jack-in-the-box and the little girl crying. And then you cut back to the jack-in-the-box and now it's crying too. Wasn't that the same angle in 7? <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, last shot, uh, we've got a high overhead of Jane dancing. Uh, she's on the beach, and she's surrounded by people watching her dance in in uh, and spin on the beach as uh, two officers run over to check on Blanche, who's passed out uh, just uh, just next to them. Uh, it is, uh, wow, what a, a strange uh, and wonderful pairing uh, the most visual tie-in for me is obviously the circles. I think that the scene from the inside the box is a sign, uh, or is a is in the circle from the inside of the Jack in the Box. Yes, and then ends yeah. uh, with the circle on the beach. Absolutely, yeah. There's this kind of circles of madness theme uh, that appeared a few times in the film, and definitely with the inside of the Jack in the Box when you're looking up through the springs as the little clown pops out. And then you've got the big crowd around Jane. And then, of course, there's this, There's when Blanche is wheeling around madly in her wheelchair around her bedroom in circles and mm-hmm. uh, all of these different circles. I mean, it really is just kind of this, this madness that we're trapped in here. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, first and last shot, I think. Well, and you know, it's uh, what, it, that many of the deep focus shots that uh, include the phone in the frame, right, uh, are also focused on the round, uh, you know, the central theme of the frame is the round of the handset, you know, of the, the earpiece. So it's it's everywhere, these circles. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I hadn't caught as, as many of those until, until we started talking about it. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, and the, the close of... Um, you know, the, the mania that comes from a jack-in-the-box uh, and the mania that we see as evidenced in, Bl- in uh, Jane dancing around the beach, absolutely unaware of what's going on around her at the cost of all of her or at the price of all of her attention that she's getting. Uh, fueling that mania is, um, you know, really central to, to what the film is about. This is another one of those films for me where if you just saw the beginning, the craziness, and you saw that last shot pull up, I think you could you could get a sense of the heart of the film. Yeah, I, I think the tears also at the beginning and uh, just the, the devastation at the end as Blanche is kind of dying on the beach. That's another mm-hmm. interesting uh, tie there. It's just, you know, this, this madness that leads to uh, heartbreak and devastation. Um, uh, casting, we've got uh, uh, Jack Merton did the casting of this film. Yeah, I don't know how much he had to play as far as with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, but uh, the rest of the film certainly... Um, I think really it was Aldrich who brought on uh, Joan Crawford to this film, and then my the the way that it reads is that uh, he actually um, is talking to her about it, and she says that Betty Davis would be interested an interesting choice to play uh, to play Jane, and because she had just recently seen uh, Davis on a show on Broadway, I believe, and so she went backstage and talked to her about it and. Sounds like that's kind of how things went down, which is really interesting that uh, considering the animosity they they may have had toward each other, that uh, that um, that they, they ended up working together. But I think before Davis, they'd considered Ingrid Bergman, Susan Hayward, Rita Hayworth, Catherine Hepburn, Jennifer Jones, Ginger Rogers, and uh, and and even Joan Crawford. I mean, her part, they'd uh, apparently considered Tallulah Bankhead, Claudette Colbert, Olivia de Havilland, and Marlena Dietrich. So... Um, a lot of interesting choices, but I think that the pair they ended up with really is what uh, kind of helps sell this film. Well, it works perfectly. And, you know, we did. I, I think it's it's absolutely fair to say we don't know just how much animosity they really had before this film. But clearly, and you found some of these tidbits that I did not find, that demonstrates that the animosity was absolutely there at the end of the film. 
my understanding, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this with the financials a little bit. I mean, they both ended up, though, having profit participation in the film. And uh, so from what I read, they really, for the most part, behaved on set. They were both good for Aldrich. Uh, they all worked well together. Um, but certainly there were little signs. Um, you know, at the time, uh, Joan Crawford was married to the chairman of Pepsi. And I, I'm not sure if if Davis had a Coke machine installed on the set or if she filled the Pepsi machine with Coke. <laughs> but one, one or the other, it sounded like she was just, you know, pushing Crawford's buttons, certainly. Davis says of Crawford that she, she had all these different uh, three sizes of, of bosoms that she would wear. And uh, she, Davis said, in the famous scene in which she lay on the beach, Joan wore the largest ones. Let's face it, when a woman lies on her back, I don't care how well endowed she is, her bosoms do not stand straight up. And Blanche had supposedly wasted away for 20 years. The scene called for me to fall on top of her. I had the breath almost knocked out of me. It was like falling on two footballs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Betty Davis pulls no punches. Oh my, these two ladies <laughs> falling uh, on football. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, the the coke bit, uh, the coke bit slays me. The you know I don't know how how much of that other stuff to believe, but the thing that I do believe uh, absolutely categorically is that Betty Davis did her own makeup, and you can see some of that in the behind the scenes video that was produced at the time. It's a terrible behind the scenes by what you might expect by today's standards, but you do see Betty Davis actually putting on her own makeup, uh, and and I'm not gonna lie to you, it's funny. Well, it's she funny. said. Yeah, I, I think what she she said about the makeup, she said that she felt Jane never washed her face, that she just added another layer of makeup each day. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think that comes through nicely. <laughs> oh, my dear. I think so, too. Yeah, it's it's terrific. Uh, what I think is interesting is, I mean, they have such big personalities, these two women, and you see so much of them um, playing themselves in the parts, almost as if... Um, people were kind of expecting a little bit of that, but also, um, you know, giving us some really interesting characters. And that's what I think is so interesting about this film is, is, is there are shades of reality all through it, yet there are, uh, it, it is very fictional at the same time. And I find that really interesting to look at as we watch these two women on screen together. Yeah, I, I agree with that. How do you think, just in terms of, of Betty Davis's performance, um, how do you, how does this stack up for you, uh, coming from the last three films that we watched? Well, since I, I guess I'm trying to convince you of Betty Davis's greatness, um, I, what I love about it is that she, uh, I think she actually even said something to the effect that, um, she never cared how she looked on screen as long as it worked for the part. And I think that for the part of uh, Baby Jane Hudson, what she brings to the table here is so big and over the top and frightening, um, but so um, so really authentic that uh, I never really feel that she's just playing it big just uh, for playing it big's sake. I mean, I really feel like she's created this character and who really is just mentally unstable. And I mean, she had kind of a, been destroyed as a child. And I don't know if it was it was because of the way that uh, that her father raised her and treated her or if she was already kind of that way. It never really uh, tells you. But 
it doesn't really matter because in the end, she's just this mentally unstable woman and she's just so unhinged. But you get that incredible turn at the end when uh, when Blanche uh, gives the big reveal about uh, the fact that she was driving and and her touching little line there. She's like, all this time we could have been friends and and it's it's haunting. It's just kind of devastating and sad. And it all comes through as so authentic. Um, I mean, I think Betty Davis, looking at all of the different films that we have watched um, in this particular series, I think that she's given such a different uh, range, but also wholly authentic for the character she's playing. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to hand that to you in terms of her her performance here. As weird as this character is, as uncomfortable as their relationships are, I find her performance here specifically as an actress to be absolutely stunningly bold. And I think it's you know back to her quote where this was a breakout film for women. This in particular, her part of this duo was a breakout film for actresses of a certain caliber and a certain age to do this sort of go-for-broke thing, to do something that that paved the way for Meryl Streep to do the crazy stuff she's done, for, uh, you know, to, to take on these roles that, you know, before then were much more difficult to to find a uh, roles that weren't written that way, but certainly to be portrayed with the sort of grit and psychosis that I think it was was hard to find, and and that Betty Davis would take on this role and play it as boldly as she did is definitive, and she's got to be celebrated for that. That that's powerful stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think that we can uh, give Joan Crawford a, a, any sort of a short shrift by uh, by not mentioning her performance. Hers is just so much more, um, uh, I mean, it's just diminutive because of the the character that she's playing. And she certainly is, is the more passive character. And I think she brings so much of that to the table here. In, in a really powerful way. I mean, she's just broken and, and psychologically just kind of crushed throughout the film. I really think that, uh, I mean, as big and bold as Betty Davis is, I think Joan Crawford is bringing a lot to the table as well. Victor Buono plays Edwin Flagg. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the guy, the guy who shows up. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what he's left The accompanist, to. right. The accompanist, right. He's the, as you can tell, I'm British. <laughs> How nice for you. <laughs> um, now, you know, he's an interesting actor. I guess Peter Lawford uh, was originally cast, but he ended up withdrawing two days after being cast because he was actually concerned his character might reflect badly on his brother-in-law, who happened to be uh, JFK. Uh, interesting tie into the trailer earlier. Um, so that's kind of funny, but we ended up with Victor Buono, who, uh, you know, he's a really kind of an interesting little character actor that I, I don't think I had seen in much other than maybe, you know, some episodes of Batman or something, but, uh, I really enjoy him here. Well, he was, he did, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Right. Yeah. He's he in was that one Fat too, yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I agree. I thought he was fantastic and and uh, you know funny and uh, even though his part was was fairly short, his his journey from like sophisticated British accompanist to uh, kind of psycho at the end, you know, as he as he discovers what's going on and realizes that he's you know he's sort of being played by this crazy woman. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. It was he fits right in and is perfect and and uh, um, you know was able to pull it together even on on short notice in a way that I made him really interesting and yeah, what a weird absolutely. relationship with his mother yeah right it's it's another pair of interesting relationships in this film yeah. something that they certainly were exploring yeah i i don't think uh, i don't think uh, anybody was a real fan of family in this film you know in, in terms of what this symbolizes i don't know if it's if it's heller uh you know uh, characterizing pharrell's uh, work in this or pharrell channeling you know using the book as therapy but but somebody's got real problems with family in this film yeah i think uh other than the neighbors and elvira <laughs> yeah you know the the there's little points of light I guess but uh, uh we you you mentioned Elvira uh, Mady Norman plays Elvira Stitt uh we like her she she plays that the role of the housekeeper um the the kind of hired support personnel uh I- interesting to see her after we after last week's film um, you know talking about all about Eve and and that sort of central character uh, you know, the kind of wise character is is the hired help. The person who seems to know it all is the first. Is the you know the person who is who is you know hired on and paid to be supportive. You absolutely could have had Thelma Ritter in this, and it would have worked yeah. just fine. <laughs> absolutely would have, right? It absolutely would have. Well, playing yeah. an archetype at this point. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, who else is on your list? Uh, just pointing out that uh, Wesley Addy, he's in it briefly as uh, one of the studio heads, or not a studio head, but one of the producers um, in the 1935 segment. Um, and he was the butler from Seconds. So uh, we've seen his face before. Um, and uh, of course, B.D. Merrill, who plays the daughter living next door, was Betty Davis's real life uh, adopted daughter. And um, yeah, like you already mentioned, she went on to write a memoir about her own mother. All the great parties they went to and circuses birthdays uh getting it made we've talked about the strategy behind putting these women together um uh, what was the what was it like for aldrich to get this uh get this movie going to get on this surprisingly difficult um aldrich was kind of an independent filmmaker and uh but he, and you know considering that he had these two women he had a really hard time getting money to get it made no studio would sign for it um, they said plenty of terrible things about uh, these two two old actresses that uh, nobody believed really could carry a film anymore. And wasn't it wasn't it Crawford? Wasn't Joan Crawford on the? She was another one who was marked as box office poison. You know, I back in the uh, in the late thirties, early forties. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, very possible, very possible. I think that's that's one of the things in that terrible uh, uh, behind the scenes that they actually pointed out was that she was also on that list. So these women were, you know, they were shunned from the box office for so long throughout their careers. Yeah, it's just it's just terrible things to to say about people, but they were still having issues getting stuff made, and um, nobody would fund it. So he ended up just kind of having to produce it independently. And he got the two actresses to sign on really for back-end profit participation. And that's how he was able to get both of them on. Got it made independently. And luckily, 
the press started getting excited about the casting. New York Times had a headline that said, TNT potential explosion seen in pairing of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And the way that it sounds is that because of that, they finally got distribution through Seven Artists, Warner Brothers. And uh, that's really the reason that it ended up getting distributed. But uh, really, I mean, it's only because he could get Davis and Crawford to sign on for profit participation and just take uh, very little money at the start that he could actually get this thing off the ground. That's how things were. It just nobody believed that this would be a movie that made any money. Uh, Ernest Heller is the was the man behind the camera on this film. And I have to tell you, this it's it's one of the reasons it was so easy to connect with this film for me is because it reminded me so much of of the thing that I liked so much about the little foxes uh, is just the way they worked the camera. Uh, and even though that film was kind of a mixed bag uh, for me, I think for both of us, this this film really celebrates just how well you can move a camera to tell the story and shooting it in black and white, too. I think that Haller really uh, played everything right as far as the way that he worked the camera to create this just really claustrophobic, dark, tight atmosphere and uh, did a really good job. I guess originally um, they were talking about filming in color, but uh, Davis really was against it, saying that it would make a sad story look pretty. Um, And I mean, I completely agree. This is just born to be a black and white film. It just works so well with those kind of noirish hints that Aldrich brought to the table. We talked about the deep focus and the little foxes. I think they celebrated here too. I wasn't sure some of them, I, I, they they wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a, a, any sort of split diopter thing, right? I mean, some of these wide shots, they were just deep focus. Yeah. Right. I didn't see anything that looked, that looked split. Nothing that, yeah, nothing that looked particularly, you know, broken like that, uh, but really used it so well, such wonderful low angles. Um, they also slapped Betty Davis on in the car and let her drive around Hollywood. And it looks so much better than the crappy process shots from All About Eve, which looks, <laughs> That's right. which were the worst. All oh, those were so bad. But yeah, Betty Davis, uh, she said uh, in 1987 uh, that she still uh, would smile when uh, she was playing Jane driving down uh, Beverly Boulevard in an old Hudson and just the expressions on people's faces and other cars when they uh, uh, saw her driving. She said, lots of mouths dropped. Which uh, I think that's just funny. Oh yeah. So, uh, but you know, I I, I think that um, what they do here is just uh, find a way to really put this world in the right uh, in the right tones and, and everything. You mentioned little foxes. Um, I was thinking mirrors and how effective they were in that film and how it worked so well in this film too. Uh, just the placement True. of mirrors and and just those shots of of Jane looking at herself in the mirror and uh, I don't know, just a lot of great uh, ways to work the oh. camera here. Really reminiscent again of all about Eve and the and yeah. the use of mirrors, right? I right, mean, right. Yeah. Ab- absolutely terrific uh, use of mirrors. Uh, Ernest Haller, uh, in addition, he he had shot with Davis and Crawford before. He'd been o- nominated for Oscar uh, for an Oscar seven times in his career. He'd won for a film we've talked about before, uh, Gone with the Wind. Ah, that little film. Yes, there was an, That's another film that we. It's a it's a good looking film. <laughs> didn't, that one didn't hold up as well. Uh, not but, as well. Uh, not as well. Of of note, he also uh, he was also behind the camera for episode two. Is the last thing he did. It looks like was episode two of Star Trek: The Original Series, where no man has gone before. That's awesome. What do you think, of, do you think about that? 
I think that's great. Uh, I think that actually he came out of semi-retirement to do that. Um, I think that the director had recommended him at the last minute after attempts to locate a cameraman had proved problematic. So um, that's exciting that he ended up coming on to do that. Roddenberry asked you to come out of retirement. You come out of retirement. (laughs) (laughs) They don't call him Don Roddenberry for nothing. That's right. The the Don. (laughs) You want to talk a little bit about, uh, we've, we mentioned uh, Betty Davis did her own makeup. Uh, uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, only other one other thing other than the fact that her, her daughter, when she saw her in the full Jane makeup, said, oh, mother, this time you've gone too far, <laughs> which, which <laughs> I, I think works in this particular context. But I did think there was one other thing that I dug up that I thought was really interesting, that Betty Davis's wig apparently had been worn by Crawford in a different film, but neither of them had recognized it because apparently it had been regroomed. And uh, so it's something that somebody discovered after the fact. I think that's just such a strange little thing. <laughs> Another connection bizarre. between these two women. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, you know, and, and in the spirit of uh, things that you can find on the your Hollywood map to the stars uh we we should say that you can find the uh the house where this was filmed where the exteriors of this of, of the film uh, was done it's at uh, 172 south mccadden place in la you can go there or you can just go there on google maps and see it because it's there it's right there and put it in 3d view and you don't actually have to bar- bother the nice people uh, <laughs> the next door neighbors have a pool Oh no, they've got a pool they too. They do too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yep, they've got a pool too. Yeah, everybody's got yes. a pool. Look Everybody at all the has pools. a pool. I know they're all over the place. It looks like the house next door actually has its own tennis court too. Boy, really? And, yeah. And Look I actually that. learned that the house next door—that's where Judy Garland was living when she was making *The Wizard of Oz*. No kidding. No kidding. Huh. L.A. Man, <laughs> it's a small world after all. Pete. Surprise around every corner. <laughs> Oh, indeed. Uh, editing, uh, editing credit. So much of the the noir thriller editing vibe goes to Michael Luciano, uh, which was just really, really successful editing work for most of the film. Uh, yeah. I, well, I'm curious what what didn't work for you, but for me, I loved it. All the horror tropes that he had, the dramatic shot of the phone off the hook with a musical sting cut in there, the just all the horror thriller cutting, just how tight it was and how tense it, the, they built uh, all of this stuff. I thought he did a fantastic job with the cutting of the film. The the clips, the old movie clips uh, that were cut into the film when looking at their old work, Jane's were um, from uh, both of Betty Davis's films, Parachute Jumper and Ex-Lady in 1933, and Blanche's uh, would have been from Crawford's film, Sadie McKee in 1934. Have you seen either of those? I haven't. I haven't seen any of them. Um, and uh, I found it very interesting that they used those films and were like good with the fact that for Davis's films, these guys were pretty much mocking everything about her performance in the films. And Crawford was like, <laughs> was like bagging on the director and the way he cut everything. I was like, this is really interesting meta story about these actresses and almost how they perceive some of their older projects. I thought that was pretty interesting. Right. And it, it actually made me go back and think, how, what do you think the selection process was like? Like, okay, Betty, what would you be willing to have lampooned? 
right in, exactly. in, of your past work. I wonder how much thought was put into that. I think that's interesting. Well, something else with the editing that I thought was interesting, um, just a, a looking at the the past and everything, I really found it very effective how they cut the sequence when uh, when basically uh, one of the women crashes into the other of the women. And the way that it's all cut, it's really, you get a sense as you're watching it, oh, they're cutting it this way where we're not seeing any faces because, well, let's see, this takes place in 1935 and and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are much too old and we've already seen them on screen. They can't cast different actresses to play them. So they're just cutting where you could kind of get a sense of who, who they might be. And it really sets it up interestingly where you really assume that Jane crashes into Blanche. I thought that was just an incredible way to set that whole premise up, yet put a twist on it that the fact is that's not actually what happened. But the reason that we assume that they cut that way and they shot it that way was because that the actresses couldn't play those parts. I I went along with it the whole time. Yeah, I did too. But I was just like, I went on along with it because I'm like, well, they can't show us the actresses. So we're just we just know that oh, it's Jane crashing into Blanche. Yeah. And then I love that we get that reveal later that it's it yeah. just it made that reveal work so well. Totally. Totally it did. Music by Frank Duvall. Uh I wasn't crazy about this. I, I, I love though that there's this period and you know, I don't know if anyone's doing it anymore, but how he's just credited as Duvall. <laughs> He's more like a like some sort of a fashion designer. <laughs> right. It's like Adrian designing all the clothes. Yeah, for Adrian. The women. Exactly. Adrian, Duvall, Charday, Cher. Cher. Sonny. I I actually liked um the music for this film. I love that there's kind of that interesting calliope theme that we get kind of about around uh Jane's lunacy. Um and then you've got that crazy I sent a letter to daddy song which is just so weird and disturbing in its own way, but how they end up integrating that into the score. I really liked that. So for me, I called the score a win. I yeah, I I I didn't connect with it. I didn't think it was thriller enough. Yeah, I didn't think they they really capitalized enough on the you, you know it, it back to the film uh, to all about Eve and the thing I loved so much about the score there is that it absolutely was a part of the storytelling and this seemed so much apart from the storytelling uh, that that it, it I I was distracted by it. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm, you know, <laughs> had you done it, we would have words, but you didn't do it. Uh, let's, uh, how to do an award season. This is a fun one to talk about with the awards. Um, it ended up getting, uh, five Oscar nominations, um, for best costume design, which it won a black and white costume design. Norma Koch won for that. Um, best sound Joseph D Kelly, who lost to John Cox for Lawrence of Arabia, uh, best cinematography, black and white, uh, lost to Jean Bourguin and Walter Waditz for the longest day. Best Supporting Actor, Victor Bono. Uh, he lost to Ed Begley in Sweet Bird of Youth. And uh, the interesting one that's definitely worth chatting about is Betty Davis was nominated for Best Actress. She ended up losing to Anne Bancroft for The Miracle Worker. And there is a big story here. Betty Davis uh, was nominated, and this uh, she had won the Oscar twice. If she won again, it would have been a record for the number of wins for one actress. Um, it had not happened. Uh, no one had won three before. So it would have been quite the story. But 
because of the animosity that had been rising between Davis and Crawford, and the fact that Crawford did not get an Oscar nomination. Apparently what happened is Crawford supposedly campaigned against Betty Davis winning Best Actress. And she even told Anne Bancroft, oh, actually, I guess she told all of the the women who were uh, nominated opposite uh, Davis, that if they weren't able to accept their award, she would be happy to get up on stage for them and accept in their presence or in, in their absence. I mean, lo and behold, Anne Bancroft was on uh, in on a play on Broadway and she, said, she accepted. She said, sure, if I win, you can accept on my behalf. And she ends up winning, and uh, Davis uh, apparently. Now this is this is rumor, but apparently uh, Davis was standing in the wings of the theater, waiting to hear the names of the winner. And when it was announced that Bancroft had won, uh, Davis felt an icy hand on her shoulder as Crawford said, "Excuse me, I have an Oscar to accept." <laughs> uh, and and uh, Davis went on to oh, say later. Uh, in years later, she said, I was positive I would get it. So was everybody in town. I almost dropped dead when I didn't win. I wanted to be the first actress to win three times, but now it's been done, so I may as well give up. And of course, the fact that Miss Crawford got permission to accept for any of the other nominees was hysterical. I was nominated, but she was receiving the acclaim. It would have meant a million more dollars to our film if I had won. Joan was thrilled I hadn't. <laughs> it's the truth. Yeah, there's there's this this other this last quote that I found that uh, on this point, which that was a great summary. But I love this image. Betty Davis says Joan traveled around the world carrying the Bancroft Oscar with her. When she came back to New York, she threw a lavish party on the stage of Mother Courage, the play Anne Bancroft was in, and presented her with the Oscar. <laughs> you know that is that's class right there. Oh. I just love it. Just yeah, this is so when crazy. actresses really knew how to rub it in each other's faces back, back then. They really did. They really, really trucked in that kind of um, that kind of vile. Oh nice my, work, ladies, nice good work. stuff. Uh, this has been remade. Yes, interesting. There was a, a 1991 TV remake starring uh, real life sisters Vanessa and Lynn Redgrave. I've never seen it. I didn't hear good things though. <laughs> You know, in in the spirit of the psycho bitty subgenre, of which you know there's a whole slew of them that this uh, this birthed, um, "Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte," which Aldrich did a few years later um, with uh, Betty Davis, he actually had cast Joan Crawford as well. They were both going to do it again, but playing the opposite roles, where Davis was going to be the one feeling that Crawford was kind of uh, destroying her. Um, and I guess they were just having such issues on set at this point. I mean, after all this Oscar hullabaloo and everything, I can I can imagine. But Crawford, um, she essentially ended up playing sick until they ended up recasting her with Olivia de Havilland and went on with their <laughs> lives. How do, how about the box office? Well, like I said, this is done independently. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Dane? J- Baby Dane? Baby Jane? <laughs> was shot in just 21 days, which is amazing. It cost an estimated $1 million to make, which is about $7.8 million in today's dollars. And, you know, I don't know how we picked it, Pete, but uh, this is four for four of October openings for Betty. Uh, whatever Happened to Baby Jane opened on Halloween 1962, the same day as George Roy Hill's marriage comedy, Period of Adjustment, starring Jane Fonda. Um, the, like I said, this was an unexpected hit, recouping its original budget in just 11 days and bumping the longest day from the top of the box office chart for its opening weekend. This ended up grossing just over $4 million domestically and nearly $5 million everywhere else, giving a total gross of $9 million, or just under $72 million in today's dollars. That means it made 
nine times its budget and left it at an adjusted profit per finished minute of $479,398. Pretty impressive, especially for the two leads getting profits from the back end. That's, yeah. you know, think about that for a minute. I mean, $72 million? Yeah, that's a I know. That's nice performance for by by today's standards. Oh, right? absolutely. Even. Well, and especially, you know, when the budget, uh, this, this grossed... Um, Nine times what the budget was. I mean, that's fantastic. That really that's is what uh, really? you want. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's time, Andy. For the fourth of our Betty Davis series, I say we rank it, and let's see see how it does. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Sign into your account over there, and uh, and this is you can go to your your Betty Davis uh, uh, fan page on <laughs> Flickchart. <laughs> I'm sure you'll find it. And uh, and and let's rank it together right here. What's up first? All right. First up, we have Whatever Happened to Baby Jane or The Road Warrior, our new O Brother block. That's a tough one. I'm going to say The Road Warrior. Yeah, me too. Wasn't that tough. I, I just feel bad. <laughs> uh, it's been the block for all of these. And, and it's, uh, three of the four are now in our bottom half because of the, the Road Warrior block. But... We've got to talk about this a lot is of why, good This is what Flickchart was meant to do, cause pain. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane or the adventures of Baron Munchausen? Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yes, indeed, I agree with you there. Whatever happened to Baby Jane or the deer hunter? Oh, Andy. That's a big one. Oh, dear. Hunter. Um, I, oh, I'm right. Smack on the fence on this one. These, these, uh, you're leaning one way. Tell me you're leaning one way. I'm, I'm leaning right to over. Baby Jane. I'm leaning to Baby Jane. I got you. Got it. Take it. Take it. Okay. <laughs> uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, or when Harry met Sally? Uh, I'm. I'm. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? I'm when Harry met Sally. Heavily. Yeah, it's such a great film. I, I don't disagree. And. It, I, it's just what I'm going to watch more. I love that, uh, the story of those two. Fantastic film. Well, I'm also going to, it is also one I'm going to watch more. Honestly, I probably will watch The Deer Hunter more. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm still whatever, I'm still, I'm when Harry met Sally. I, I don't know. It's just a perfect example of a, a brilliant uh, use of storytelling as you watch these two over the course of their lives uh, falling in love. I love it. And I would argue that uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane is the perfect story of watching these two fallen <laughs> siblings fall into complete disarray over the course of their lives. It is uh, it is an uncanny parallel to when Harry met Sally. That's funny. That is funny. You can have it. Okay. <laughs> I, I made I my case. Go to the man whatever. No, no, no. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane or Driving Miss Daisy? I'm going to go with Baby Jane. That surprises me a little bit. I'll also Does go it? with Baby Jane. Yeah, it, it surprises me, but I'll go with Baby Jane. All right. Whatever happened to Baby Jane or Midnight Run? Haven't seen that pop up in quite a while. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, I think. Boy, I sure like me some Midnight Run, but weirdly, I think Baby Jane I'm going to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that settles it, Pete. We're at 159 out of 275 on our flick chart. God, I think that that's a pretty good spot. Warrior. I, I know. I for, for considering we lost to the Road Warrior, I still think it ended up. It's a pretty good spot. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's okay, despite the fact that um, you know <laughs> all of these films I probably would put in the top half, but it it is what, what it, it is. 
So how do you how do you uh, how do you rectify your letterbox ranking, your star ranking at a movie that's at 159 on Flickchart? This is still a four star film for me. I mean, I I have a great time watching it. Um, it's it's I, I'm not sure exactly why I drop a star off of it, but I I, I, I don't you know. know either. What what is the difference between her performance? And, I mean, her performance in this film is is uh, largely more challenging. Uh, certainly uh, more breathtakingly strenuous as an actress than her role in All About Eve. And that movie ended up being a five star. I, I think it's just the story itself. I mean, as much as I enjoy the film, it's just kind of a really dark uh, psychological film. And it's it's just more difficult to watch. And so I think that ends up in my mind just kind of diminishing it, I guess, a little bit, maybe. I don't know. All right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm selling myself on it, but I just I walked. I when I left, I'm like, you know, I think it's probably a four star. Okay. I, I mean, I'm. I think I'm in that four star range too. I I struggle with it because I really am. I'm so keen on these performances of these women, and I think it's just so strong. And I don't want to be the guy that only likes the happy movies, but I fear that that's kind of where I my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's all funny. about Eve really just nails a five star, but that's mostly because everybody's dressed up really pretty and <laughs> looks nice all the time. And <laughs> and uh, this, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not that guy. I really, I'm, I swear, I'm not. But but I'm I'm kind of a four star here, and I I feel like my I, you did you did able work, Andy, on this series. You really did. I don't know <laughs> that I'm totally sold on Betty Davis being the icon. I had mixed results with the first two films, with The Little Foxes and Now Voyager, and uh, and great results with these last two films. So I feel like you know we're we're sort of what is that? We're we're batting five hundred. Yeah, I guess so. is that that is that what that means in sports ball? Sure. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I'm not. Uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like it's and none of these like you know when when st- only half of them were really home runs for me I I feel like I'm not I'm not completely sold on it. We didn't really talk about how this this film has become such an icon for um like a queer icon. Is that what you were yeah. calling it? Right, I, right. I don't understand that. I I don't understand that and it shows how far afield from those cultural elements that I am in watching these movies. I don't get it. Like I've never been exposed to it in that light, so I don't understand uh where she gets some of the the sort of cultural credibility that she gets. Um and while I think she's a she's a terrifically fine actress, I just don't I I don't quite understand the icon. I I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just uh, what I love about Betty Davis is she is one of those performers who puts, you know, 110% of herself into every performance. And I think we've seen it in all of these different films here. She's been so different in every film and she's always delivered a a wholly unique character. And uh, I I think regardless of what you think of the films, I think as as far as a series goes, I think it's interesting to just see what Betty Davis can do on screen and how she brings it. And I think to that end, I think is a really interesting uh, swath of her career that we uh, that we explored here. So I mean, I had seen three of the four. I'd never seen Little Foxes, but um, and you know I had some issues with that film, but I still enjoyed it. And and I think a lot of it is just because I think that she's just such an interesting person to watch. Yeah, I I I can see it. I I, I see what you mean there, and I also uh, I just echo how. Uh, 
deeply gratified I am that we actually did this series because I, I obviously needed more exposure to Betty Davis. And if anything, I learned out of this series, I, I should see more Betty Davis movies because, you know, I can maybe we're just chipping away at a wall. Yeah, there you go. And uh, I need to I need to break through it. So I am I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> a weird thing to say about an actress. <laughs> What's funny about this particular film in this series is this made me realize what a hole I have in my uh, filmography of all the movies I've seen um, of of uh, Joan Crawford. I, I feel like, man, there's an actress I need to see more films of because I don't feel it's fair to to have um, Faye Dunaway's performance of her so locked in my head as who Joan Crawford is. I feel like I need to go watch more of her movies. Man, that was exactly my thought. And and actually why I brought that up earlier, that my impression of Jane Crawford or Joan Crawford is is Faye Dunaway. That is so unfair. That's horrible to 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 do when she was just at the she was one of the great actresses in the thirties and forties. We need to we need to see more stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's it. So we're locked on four stars on this one. Is that what? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm good on four stars. I could almost go up to four and a half, but I think I'm. I think I'm at four. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do it. Let's leave it at four. And uh, let me ask you, Andy, if this is uh, if this is the end of our Betty Davis series, what comes next? Oh, Pete, it's a big one. Oh, it man. is a big one. Yeah, we are going to be tackling the Godfather trilogy, and. Uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting time of year for us to pick a series of such long films. Uh, but yes, we've got a few uh, beefy ones to tackle, and I'm very much looking forward to going through this uh, this trilogy again. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm excited to explore all three of them and really get a sense of how they all work, regardless of uh, what people think of the number three. I, I actually have never watched all three of them in any sort of marathon fashion. Oh, really? I've always watched them completely independently of one another. Oh, that's so funny. My my, my right? wife and I would always uh, we would do uh, we would, before we had kids like once a year or, or so we would uh, watch the whole trilogy. We'd make Italian food and we'd just sit there and watch the whole trilogy. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> that's Those awesome. days don't happen anymore. <laughs> no, I imagine they do not. I'm, I'm very excited to get into this. That's coming next week. So, uh, uh, and and we should say this show, as we are speaking, is uh, it it's uh, going live right here on uh, American uh, Thanksgiving holiday. So, uh, if you are celebrating Thanksgiving anywhere uh, in the world, you are celebrating Thanksgiving. This this American holiday of turkey. We wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and we are super thankful that that you know. We're here doing the show, and that you guys are all downloading and listening to it, and and um, you know you're probably not actually listening on Thanksgiving because who are we kidding? You're probably eating. <laughs> but thanks anyway. Whenever you get to Thank it, happy you. Thanksgiving. There you go. That's it. I gotta go to bed. Why? Because you're ugly? No, Pete. You weren't ugly. I made you that way. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I've got one from uh, 2003.
There aren't, I, we should say, there aren't a lot of one stars. People love it. So I'm, I'm going 85% five stars. 85%. Yeah, people, I think that's fair to say people love it. Although many of those same people don't know if they're talking about Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tom Servo writes in from July 31st, 2003. After watching the DVD of this film, I think this was trying to be scary, but it wasn't at all. I found that this movie is best viewed as a dark comedy. The film opens years after a calamitous car accident leaves Blanche in a wheelchair with no one to care for her except the increasingly insane and sadistic Jane and their servant, Norman. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to punish... Trying to punish Blanche for her years of success, Jane tortures the housebound woman, slowly trying to starve her to death, all while attempting to recapture the fame of her youth. This dark drama also stars Victor Buono as the hefty pianist who answers Jane's ad for an accompanist, hoping to milk some money off the demented old woman. I think it was trying to capitalize on the success of Psycho. Oh well. (laughs) Get some bud together and enjoy this kooky comedy. (laughs) (laughs) at least i feel like i better i i better understand why (laughs) the servant was norman (laughs) what oh Oh, so funny (laughs) well i've got a one star by tea bake speaking of buds uh who said "Ooh, i think i want to vomit this movie might possibly be the worst ever film on the face of this world. <laughs> I would advise everyone to save their money to buy something that you won't want to kill yourself over. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is about two crazed sisters, one of whom is crippled, Blanche. Her sister Jane still thinks she's a beautiful child actor that wants all of the attention. When Jane's sister gets all of the attention and tries to kill her, you see she just gets more and more crazy. As the movie progresses, you get more and more annoyed. One cannot even sleep during this movie just because of how <laughs> irritated you get. <laughs> it's good that you're trying to take a nap here. Finally, at the end of the movie, we find Jane and Blanche, near death row, on a beach. Jane wants some ice cream, so she gets it and leaves her sister to die, starving and thirsty on the beach. Do yourself a favor. Listen to me when I say this is the worst movie ever. (laughs) This is the worst movie, and it should apologize. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 